Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Evergetinos. And we are picking up with uh, Hypothesis 33, and we'll be moving into 34 uh, fairly soon. And the focus, if you remember, has been on the practice of asceticism and what that looks like, especially in relationship to one's spiritual director or spiritual elder, as would have been very important for the monks. And very quickly, uh, it becomes tied then to obedience, that asceticism so often has to do with setting aside our own willfulness in one way or another in regards to uh, our appetites or uh, simply to choosing our own path. And so the emphasis here and the stories and the sayings coming up are going to be on how the, the monks lived out this life of obedience to superior, the revelation of thoughts, but uh, kind of absolute uh, setting aside of their will that is, again, striking in so many different ways. We're picking up on the bottom of page 292 with paragraph 14. One of the fathers begged God to inform him to what measure of virtue he had attained. God revealed to him that in such and such a synobium, there is a brother who is better than you. The elder immediately set out to go to the synobium. When the abbot and the elders of the monastery heard this, they went to meet him, for he was a great and renowned monk. After entering the Snobium, the elders said to them, I wish to see all the brothers and greet them. At the abbot's order, all the brothers came, with the exception of the one about whom God had informed the elder. Is there not another brother in the monastery? They asked the elder. Yes, there is one other, replied the abbot, but he is spiritually retarded and busy with the garden. Summon him, said the elder. So they summoned him, and when the elder saw him, he got up from his seat and greeted him. Taking him aside, he asked him insistently, what is your spiritual work? Tell me. I'm a foolish man, my elder, he answered. After the elder had begged him earnestly, he at length disclosed the following. The abbot placed in my cell with me an ox, which pulls the wheel of a well. And every day it breaks the strands of the reed mat that I am working on. I've endured this now for 30 years, and I have never allowed my mind to feel any resentment against my abbot. But neither have I ever thrashed the ox on account of the damage. I've been forbearing and replayed the strands, giving thanks to God. When he heard this, the elder was amazed because from this he realized what the remainder of the brother's spiritual work was. So an interesting little story that uh, it's not un unusual. We hear stories like this in the life of St. Anthony as well, hearing that there's one who's reached a level of sanctity uh, greater than that he had achieved. And, uh, and here we find a similar story in, rega in regard specifically to the practice of obedience. And uh, it's interesting, it's, it's one uh, not even uh, acknowledged or recognized by his own community, and yet through whom God was doing this extraordinary work uh, through humbling him on a daily basis over the course of 30 years. And uh, it's, it reminded me a little bit, even as I was reading it, of the story of uh, the choosing of David uh, to be anointed, that seeming like the least of his brothers, uh, the prophet, you know, saying, surely, you know, and seeing the first brother, surely this must be, the, you know, the, the next anointed one of God. And yet uh, they're all rejected, as it were, by God. And it's David, you know, this the youngest brother uh, who doesn't have this demeanor of a king, but rather is sim simply a poor shepherd. And here we have one who, it's interesting how it's put, you know, certainly not very PC in our day, but uh, the, the wording spiritually retarded, that, you know, in the eyes of his own abbot, that he seemed slow in the embrace of the monastic life. And, 
and almost it seems as though he's being punished by the abbot because of his simplicity that he's placed in a room with an ox that is you know constantly uh what was it driving the uh, the the uh well uh, the wheel of the well throughout the course of the day but in the process destroying the work that was laid upon him in obedience uh to fulfill which was making these mats out of reeds and uh and yet he does this over the course of 30 years without complaining uh about it or of uh, speaking negatively about the abbot and so there's a kind of perfection of, of his obedience here that there's no complaining spirit within him that his will uh had and his ego had been crucified uh in the sense that it had been put to death that there, he did not allow what had taken place over the course of these 30 years to drive him to anger uh, to seek to protect uh any anything about his self or self-will or what he was accomplishing and again it's something i think very challenging for us to imagine uh this level of obedience you know what is it that he was listening to you know in his spiritual life or in his relationship with god that would lead him to take this path and uh and it has as it is for all of us to be christ himself uh this dying to self uh in order to embrace perfectly the will of the father even when the reason behind that isn't clear and when it is contrary to our sensibilities and so here you know he's looked down upon by the community but also what he's given to do is destroyed daily so there's nothing to bolster up his ego or self-identity either other than the fact of his identity being rooted solely in Christ and again I think that's a hard thing for us to imagine because we seek on a daily basis to build up our identity our self-esteem is to strengthen our ego through the things that we do and through the things that we accomplish and again you know this seems benign to us because it's the the norm of our day-to-day -day life and of everybody else's life that we would seek uh to accomplish certain things through the work of our own hands and here the work is so interior uh the the embrace of the spirit of obedience uh willingness to let go of anything and seeing anything as his own including his own will and ego and you know how is it that we then look at this in our day-to-day -day life and you know certainly we're not to be a house with an ox and i don't think anyone would expect that of us although getting a dog has shown me a little bit of something of that I'm, I pretty much mop the floor every single day only to see it destroyed uh, a few minutes later but uh you know I, I think on some level when we read stories like this it shows us just how much we do cling to this sense of a self-formed identity rather than what has been bestowed upon us by God this identity that is rooted in Christ, that we are sons and daughters of God, and that we've been called to embrace this life of, of perfect love, of a selfless love that pours itself out, allows itself to be broken for others. And, uh, and yet, even bearing the name of Christian, we often lose sight of that. And again, it doesn't have to be through an overt commi uh, committing of sin but it can be this very subtle putting of the self forward uh, to such an extent that we lose sight of God and we lose that capacity if you remember the root of of the word obedience itself is ab adere to hear to to be able to listen to God and the word that he speaks to us and even those things of our day-to-day -day life that are good can sometimes deafen us 
to uh, what God is calling us to, whether it's in our service of others or the call to greater and deeper prayer. Uh, we can become deaf to that voice while we are seeking to listen to uh, what our own minds and hearts are telling us, as well as others within, within the world. And uh, St. Seraphim of Seraph said that silence is the cross upon which we crucify the ego. And I've always been struck by that statement because, you know, to enter into that discipline of silence where we control our speech and we listen to God on this very deep level uh, crucifies the ego uh, because we are not allowing it to be fed uh, through our constantly engaging others through a kind of talkativeness or engaging the world around us. We're remaining in ourselves or for us in our hearts in order that we might listen to God rather than seeking uh, to, to satisfy that part of our, ourselves that has this need to be engaged or seeks fulfillment uh, in the world around us in a way that is distorted from how God created it. That God certainly has given us the world around us and we are to see his glory within it and even make use of it, participate in it fully, but so often we, we make it an end in itself or allow it to become something that blinds or deafens us uh, to God. And so in reading this story, we have to ask ourselves, well, who, who is the spiritually retarded one here in the sense you know, of our response to God or the gospel? Have we allowed ourselves to mature in our reading of the gospel and in our practice of the spiritual life, uh, in our pursuit of holiness uh, that we've been called to, or are we satisfied with something far less? Uh, let's see, I see some notes going up here. I'm not sure if they're tied. Okay, anybody have any particular comments? on this story. Okay. Well, we'll move on to St. Ephraim the Syrian uh, with th these thoughts in mind. My brother, if you are under obedience to fathers, your unshakable faith will be apparent from this, not in their lavishing attention on you, and in your hearing sweet and gentle words, but in your showing endurance when they strike you and insult you, or even a uh, wild beast becomes tame, for even a wild beast becomes tame and meek when you flatter it. Do not then feel bitterness towards him who causes you distress if you want to become a vessel of election but be subject to your teacher in all things with serenity, just as the Lord, when he became man, was subject in humility first to his mother and to him who is regarded as his father, as the sacred evangelist informs us, and he was subject to them. And then to his true heavenly father, to whom he became obedient even unto death, even death on the cross, as the apostle says. And so, it challenges our view, I think, of obedience and certainly uh, what a spiritual elder uh, would be for us in terms of our guidance in the spiritual life and what that would look like. And we are immediately directed back towards Christ as the model and the standard for ourselves. And it's interesting here that he says, even a wild beast becomes tame and meek when you flatter it. So when you treat it gently and say, good, good boy, good boy, you're so wonderful, you know, that over the course of time, you know, it comes to love you. And if you give it like little snacks and things like that. But, you know, his point here is that uh, if we are to rise to the level of election to sons and daughters of God, to be conformed to Christ, and to this unconditional love and obedience that was shown not only to Mary and Joseph in his incarnation. You know, he who through 
through whom all of creation came into being, uh, as we've talked about before, becomes infons, wordless one, but then also becomes obedient subject to earthly parents in terms of his formation, his growth, and his care. Uh, allows himself to be humbled in a way that is far more difficult for us to imagine than the things that we've read here tonight already. Uh, and yet we don't often allow us, ourselves to reflect upon it this deeply, that both in his obedience to Mary and Joseph, but especially to his father, Heavenly Father, that there is a self-emptying there, a letting go of his will that goes beyond reason or be, goes beyond one's judgment uh, in terms of what is good or holy or what would accomplish that which is good. That one can imagine the darkness that began to come across Christ, especially uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And when the weight and the burden of the, the world's sin becomes, you know, begins to uh, fall upon him even more greatly when he sweats blood and then certainly from the cross when this experience of separation or abandonment uh becomes complete when he knows the full weight of the the world's sin that it's hard you know to imagine there holding on in love in absolute darkness when one is not experiencing any consolation but simply holds on uh, to that which is good or that which has been revealed to us, to have that level of trust and faith and hope in God. And, and so when we read these stories of these monks, we, sh we should not, in a sense, be surprised, uh, you know, not certainly taking them as models to imitate in the exact things that are done, but we should not find ourselves surprised at the depth, uh, depths to which they would go to let go of that self-will, uh, especially in light of what Ephraim says here, that what we are called to is to embrace our election as sons and daughters of God, to have, to become perfect as our heavenly father is perfect, to become merciful as he is merciful. And uh, there's a lot that needs to be put to death and raised to life within us before that takes place. Any comments? Questions? Yes, Charbel. So what you... Um what you had just said about uh, we should not be surprised at the depths to which they would go. It called to mind uh, something I read this morning from the prologue of Okrin. Um, it's the uh, hymn of praise. Um, is it okay if I read it? Mm -hmm. uh, the, the, the saint being com commemorated is Saint Martinian who um, stood in the fire to flee from the temptation of lust and Zoe is the woman who uh, was tempting him. So Zoe looked at the monk in the fire with horror, how he burned with neither complaint nor fear nor sighing. With horror and with shame, Zoe repented. Oh, what this man does just to save his soul. Bowing and begging forgiveness, she began to weep, asking how to resist evil, to save the soul and resist evil in the flesh. The man of God, he too began to weep for joy. To Bethlehem, to the blessed Paula, he sent her. Depart, women. Save yourself, go and do not perish. Blessed Paula will tell you everything else. Completely humbled, Zoe departed over the turquoise sea. Paula received her like a little sister and instructed her. Zoe cried, Zoe listened, endured and remained silent. So 12 summers passed, 12 years. Sister Zoe became known as an ascetic. She washed her face with tears and before her death, she asked God, has God forgiven her? Has he or has he not? At that moment, a blind woman was led before Zoe's door. Pray that I might see, pray, pray. In tears, Zoe prayed, and the woman received her sight. Thus did Zoe know that she was forgiven. God is glorified through sinners when they repent. Then, through their miracles on earth, they shine. 
like stars? Striking. Yes, you know, what, what, an what a saint is willing to go through in order to protect his virtue or to pursue the will of God. And that seems like foolishness in the eyes of the world. Uh, stumbling block in the same way that the cross is. Uh, this willingness to embrace death, to be pinned to a cross, which, you know, it was horrendous in its own right, but certainly under the burden of the sin of the world. And yet uh, we often will look at with a kind of horror at stories like this, the things that the saints endured to bear witness to Christ, you know, wondering, you know, where God is. And yet we will so often elevate uh, the, the sacrifices that individuals make in this world for the pursuit of worldly ends. And, you know, yesterday was the Super Bowl and not that that has anything to do with this, but uh, just the, the level of intense focus that goes into it, not just the players itself, but the, the media and then all the fans, the fans too, uh, all the energy that is poured into everything that surrounds it, the commercials, uh, 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 you know, during the Super Bowl as well. And uh, I came across a story of, I think he played for the, the Rams way back and it, he broke his leg and, you know, he was talking about how tough this guy was and that basically they, they put this, you know, cast on him and he played, uh, finished out the, the championship game, played in the NF or in the Super Bowl, which is team one. And then he went on to play in the first, uh, is it called the Pro Bowl, uh, where like all those who are the best players from each team yeah. will play every year and and he, he still has this broken leg and you know he's held up as this sort of almost like this heroic character uh who uh you know has this strength uh and rigor about him that he's willing to endure the greatest pains for sport and uh and for the glory you know the worldly glories that pass very quickly and Yet, when we think about that in regard to uh, the saints, and again, the election to which we are called, and the battle in which we are engaged with principalities and powers, that what it is that we pursue is no crown of earthly glory, that what we are, are seeking is a participation in the fullness of the life of God, deification. And uh, it, when we see things in light of this, uh, there should be a, a willingness and even a <laughs> within the heart uh, to, to make this greater sacrifice of ourselves, even to the point of death. If we are able to see with the eyes of faith, I think what we've seen in the saints, uh, whether it is this monk that you, you mentioned or Zoe, who then convert, you know, convert, repents, and gives her life over. Paul, Saint Paul himself, is a striking example. And you know, when once his eyes are open, you know, what what it is he was willing to do in sacrifice, and in, in order to serve Christ. And uh, and yet we balk at this, uh, even in terms of the obedience. Uh, of simply living the Christian life and the spiritual life on a day-to-day -day basis, following a role that we might even shape ourselves or shape with our spiritual director, that there often can be a, an unwillingness or a disobedient spirit there uh, to, to embrace something greater than our own, own will to uh, pursue that relationship with Christ uh, as, it, as if it has the value that it truly has. And, you know, as Christians, we are often very good at, you know, talking the talk, as it were, and, you know, talking a lot about Christ and talking a lot about the spiritual life. It's another thing, though, to live it, 
and to embody the the cruciform love uh, that we see in Christ and to make that manifest to the world in the smallest interactions that we have with others or to the things that have the greatest cost for us. And, uh, and so, again, you know, there's something about these stories. You know, when I said, as Charbel mentioned, you know, that we should not be surprised by this, uh, and yet we often are. And uh, rather than allowing it to set a, a kind of fire within us uh, for Christ and a desire to serve him more fully, we, we often shrink back from it because I think it's hard for us when the ego is still, you know, deeply ensconced in its place for us to give ourselves over in this fashion because everything that we do and including uh you know even the therapy when we experience wounds in our life you know even part of what we do is often therapeutically the strengthening of the ego and the defenses surrounding it in order that we might function more fully within this world and to be able to accomplish the the goals that we would want to love and to give ourselves in love to another or to work uh, to be able to function and so not to diminish that but i think uh when this kind of therapy is seen outside of the context of the greater christian identity that we have uh, so often it can be at odds because simply strengthening our ego to protect ourselves on an emotional level uh, is not necessarily going to be something that leads us to Christ or to or that sanctifies us. And not saying that we shouldn't seek healing for ourselves on an emotional level, but we would want to do that within the context of this greater identity as being of being called son to, to be called sons and daughters of God. And uh, I think it's become increasingly more difficult for us to have a kind of clarity uh, about walking that path. How is it that we as Christian men and women live in a world like ours and allow that distinctive and unique identity to shape the way that we interact with the world around us and shape the choices that we make? So let's move on a little bit more with St. Ephraim. You should accept with gratitude the afflictions that befall you and the instructive test of your abbot. For as Holy Scripture says, what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? But if he be without chastisement, whereof all are, are partakers, then are ye bastards and not sons? Have your superiors beaten you? Rejoice over this and correct your fault. Now, did they beat you unjustly? Then your reward becomes much greater. For when the apostles were preaching salvation to the world, they were beaten like criminals in various societies and cities. And yet they did not get angry or indignant, but they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. But perhaps one of the more negligent brothers will say, I'm grieved that this happened to me after the many labors that I performed in the monastery. To him, we could say, does this really distress you, servant of God? Understand from this that after the many years and many labors to which you appeal, you have not yet overcome your passions. For if one has the opinion that he is something, whereas he is nothing, he deceives himself like a lunatic. Just as the pilot shows his professional competence when the seas are rough, so also the monk shows what kind of monastic he is when his superiors insult and scald him. That is, whether he endures these testings with joy, as he would if he were making great profits, or is bothered and distressed by them. 
he who boasts that he has spent so many years in the monastic life, but presents no proofs of his labor and has not succeeded in acquiring this holy way of life, is like one who carries around tools which he has not yet learned how to use. Yikes. Ephraim doesn't uh, mince words here. Uh, it's very challenging because uh, he's presenting an image of the Christian life, the life of obedience, the monastic life uh, that, you know, certainly isn't in accord with modern sensibilities or even in terms of, I think, of our understanding and, and uh, of love itself and of what is uh, pleasing before the eyes of God. And certainly the idea of bearing the insults of others and even the physical beatings of an abbot or uh, the hatred of the world. You know, I think there we could maybe make a step for ourselves intellectually uh, that one is making certain sacrifices for the gospel or uh, for Christ himself, but to, to bear this kind of insult from those who even sh share the life that we have embraced with them can be a much more difficult thing to do. And Ephraim warns here, don't, don't overestimate your value uh, in the life that you've embraced uh, or the heroic level to which you've embraced it. You know, many are great in their own estimation and thinking in terms of how they've lived the life. And so he says, you know, you've been a monastic for 30 years, but really do you carry within you the proof of that fidelity? Uh, or, or is it simply an image of it that you carry in your own mind? Uh, of what is good or valuable? And is that rooted more in the things that you've accomplished as a monastic, uh, that these things have value in your eyes? Is the moment that they are diminished in the eyes of others and rejected, uh, is it something that stirs up anger within the heart? And uh, this, you know, this is a difficult thing for me to read too. And, uh, you know, to um, understand that, you know, even the things that we do for Christ, there can be a lot of ourselves in them and uh, a lot of self-will within them. And we often, uh, I think, interpret success, even on a spiritual level, with what is produced or what is accomplished. And here, you know, with this one monk, it is endurance, the years spent in the monastic life, as if in and of itself that has value. But in the eyes of God, and in regards to love, fidelity, obedience, humility, what, what is the, the deeper truth? there what what is really treasured within the human heart and uh it's a humbling thing to read uh you know i've been a priest almost 30 years now <laughs> and so i hear myself often say these words in my own mind and in my own heart you know when uh when I've experienced myself as being disrespected or, or having that experience be, uh, be given no account uh, or, or seen as having no value. Uh, the, it's, it's sort of a sharp thing to realize how fully one can cling to ego despite having given one's life over to something like the priesthood. And uh, we used to have a cook uh, where I used to live. And uh, when I first came there, 
And uh, for those who are Pittsburghers, she was uh, a chef at the Harvard Yale, uh, Harvard Yale Princeton, print, Harvard Yale Princeton Club, or something like that, here in Pittsburgh. And uh, uh, as she got older and retired, she came to work for uh, my former community, and she made the best desserts <laughs> in the world. And uh, and she was an extraordinary cook. But in her mind, that you know, the priest had given up so much. And so what they deserved was, you know, at least these good, good meals. And I remember first moving into the oratory, I was still an undergraduate. And, you know, I'd, you know, be studying, it would be like 11 o'clock and uh, be in watching the news and get a piece of her banana cream pie. You know, <laughs> it was just extraordinary. And, uh, but, you know, it was not to fault her, you know, all of that was done out of a genuine love and affection. But I, I think it can often be interiorized by priests or anybody, I think, who makes any certain sacrifices in their life, that they deserve certain things because greater things have been given up and uh, are willing to uh, allow themselves a kind of latitude in uh, embracing certain things of this world uh, because of sacrifices made. And, uh, you know, certainly this has had an enormous effect upon the life of the priesthood and monastic life over the course of centuries, sometimes in greater ways than others, some centuries greater ways than others. And uh, it's when it can lead us in a subtle way to take our eyes off of Christ. And in particular, St. Paul says, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And for a particular reason, you know, that we, we keep Christ crucified before our eyes because it's there that we see the humility of God and the, the selflessness of our Lord and, and his love. And as I've often said, we, you know, are very capable as Christians of having the greatest kinds of delusions about ourselves. They might be religious delusions, but nonetheless, they are delusions, you know, that somehow we have been shaped by this reality. The Paul tells us so clearly is foolishness or a stumbling block for the majority of the world, the cross. And, you know, have we reached this point where we love it or we embrace it or take hold of it? Because that's what we're being shown in some of these stories, these men who willingly embrace these crosses in their life and don't pursue uh, the typical dignities that we cling to on a day-to-day -day basis. And uh, there's something, I, I don't know, the word that came to my mind to say, and I held back from saying it, was frightening about this. Uh, because to set aside one's self and ego uh, on this level, it can be a terrifying thing. And uh, it can leave one with a sense of confusion uh, about oneself, one's life, one's decisions and identity. And uh, just let me share with you just, you know, it, part of psychoanalytic training is going through analysis itself. And you are on the couch often four or five times a week and uh, you know you aren't facing the analyst at all, so you're not getting anything, any feedback, uh, verbal, nonverbal at all. You know, there's a great deal of listening that takes place, uh, both for the analysand and the analyst, uh, that you are attentive to the thoughts, the feelings that are going th through you, and articulating them, and. Uh, but to do this means allowing your defenses to drop 
It's not an easy thing to tell another person the dreams that you have or the thought that comes to mind at that moment, or even the thought that comes to mind about them as your analyst. I just had this terrible feeling of anger about you. You disgust me. <laughs> or I had this dream last night uh, you know, that was really you know, embarrassing and to be able to ar articulate it and to be, become aware of this internal narrative. And you know, often when going through in analysis, you're also going through trials, you know, those who would typically be coming to therapy of this sort or have undergone trials in their life. And so to drop one's defenses over the course of time in order to discover the deeper wounds that give rise to say depression or anxiety or kind of self-hatred uh, can be a very difficult thing. One feels naked in the process. And when walking out with a partial narrative of one element of what came to one's mind on a given day does not give you much in return. And so the reason I bring this up is that when one becomes vulnerable before God, to open the mind and the heart to God, whose spirit searches the depths, and to, to entrust oneself to that love, to that spirit of truth, is no easy thing. And the resistance that we often will see in psychoanalysis, you know, it's a curious thing. You know, we, come, we begin to see it, 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 it manifests itself so clearly. Because if the analyst is behind you and you know nothing about their life, the feelings of anger or hatred or whatever you have towards them, you can't blame them for it because they didn't do anything to you. You know, they're like a blank wall. And similar, you know, to open oneself up before God and to the light of that spirit of truth and that love, to allow that to shine into the deepest recesses of our hearts can be a frightening thing unless it's rooted in this deep love for the Lord, where there's this kind of trust that has emerged over the course of time, that that love and that light is not going to shame us or shatter us, but he heal us. And so much I think of the writings of the fathers and my long digression here has to do with, I think so much of the writings of the fathers does exactly this. It shines this light uh, and it, it illuminates the, the gospel itself. They become uh, living icons of the gospel and they show us this path that involves doing exactly something that is like analytic work. It's allowing you know, the demons within to be illuminated by the light of Christ in order that they might be cast out and the wounds that we bear because of our sins uh, to be seen clearly, again, that they might be healed by the mercy and the grace of God. And sometimes, you know, that can be a terrifying thing and we can resist it and turn inward and away from God or even lash out at God. I, when I was a child, and I've mentioned this in some of my other groups, so I'm sorry for repeating it, but I had a dog that was rather small, on the smaller side. This is why I got a big dog as an adult, so this couldn't happen. But uh, one of my friends was running next to him and stepped on his leg. And I never heard a dog scream like that before because his leg was broken. And my first instinct was to run over and pick the dog up. And as I picked him up, he was biting my hands uh, because he was in so much pain. And, you know, often this happens with therapists, but it also certainly happens, I think, with for God, that even though he loves us with this perfect love, that our response to that approach you know, that desire to bring us healing and life can be met with 
uh, the anger that is often tied up with the pain uh, and the shame of our sin, of our brokenness, and of the wounds that we bear from life itself. And it's no small thing to be able to open one's heart to God on that level. And, you know, as a priest over time, you begin to see uh, how deep those wounds can be, you know, certainly from one's own sins, but often through the sins of others that leave deep wounds in a, in a brokenness, and that there often is this anger and pain that's tied to it. And, uh, and so I think our, our response to these stories from the Desert Fathers is often uh, like countertransference. And countertransference is often the sort of the response, the feelings that an analyst will have in response to the analysand, that things that the analysand is saying to him will evoke something deep within him and give rise to certain feelings. And so you begin to experience something of the other's pain. And, uh, you know, hearing these stories and, uh, you know, our, sometimes our repulsion uh, at hearing them, uh, I think reveals something within us of, of where, of what the wound is. It reveals a kind of truth to us. And I think often when it is tied to ego and self-comfort uh, and feeling sort of safe and secure within the world that we've created for ourselves, when we hear a message like th this spoken, it, it, it can unsettle us. And I, it's for this reason, I often spend so much time telling people, you know, if, if there's parts of this that unsettle you or that question, make you question, or uh, that, you know, you can't find yourself giving an easy assent to, that's okay. You know, allow yourself to sit with it. And more importantly, allow yourself to sit with God and allow him to illuminate what is being spoken of here on a, on a deeper level. Because again, you know, what is being put forward is this struggle to, to embrace the obedient love of Christ in, in these individuals' life. That's what we see them struggling to do, you know, in the face of whatever their superior does to them or what life throws at them. And, uh, but nonetheless, it is their struggle to embrace what they see on the cross. And if we're listening on a deep level, if we're reading the gospel and these in, a, in an obedient way, you know, in a teachable way, I, I would think that would be our, our response. At times frightening, uh, find it frightening or uncomfortable, dizzying, leaving us confused. And, you know, if I think we've gotten to the point where we've domesticated the gospel and our familiar, familiarity with it doesn't allow it to do that to us anymore. Whereas we often talked about it here before, when people first heard Christ talk, they're ripping their garments and wanting to throw them off of the brow of a hill. And, you know, and we lose sight of that. You know, we, we hear these things over and over again, and it, it doesn't shake our sensibilities and the ascetic writings and these images from the the lives of the ascetics i think allows us to see something that might, maybe we become blind and deaf to over the course of time and so you know one has to be careful in how we read these things and, you know, I'm not putting forward, you know, imitate this. Uh, I think what I'm saying is listen to this 
and listen to it on a deep level in order to see what it is that we hear and if it is and what it is in it and to see what it is that we see and do we hear christ do we see christ do we hear the gospel or that call to die to self and sin or to take up our cross daily and follow him any comments or questions before moving on with the rest of Ephraim. Okay. I reckon that he who has assumed spiritual protection over you will not rejoice at your imperfection because he is going to give an account to the Lord for your salvation. And so, you know, as we've heard before, that this is not a detached kind of guidance and direction uh you know where somebody reads a book and sort of is handing on something to another uh you know that there has to be a, a love a devotion for one and uh for the person in one's care and a desire for them to experience the fullness of life and salvation by contrast he will be all joy if he presents you as perfect to the lord this is why you are obliged to endure gratefully whatever comes from him, even if it is painful, as a means of healing, not of punishment. If you're enabled, not able to put up with a small affliction or temptation for the sake of the Lord, then how will you endure the great one? And if you cannot endure an insult or a slap or a blow, how will you carry the cross which you are promised right from the cross? I'm sorry right from the beginning, to bear on your shoulders. Let me read that again. And if you cannot endure an insult or a slap or a blow, how will you carry the cross which you, which you promised right from the beginning to bear on your shoulders? And if you do not carry your cross, how will you become an heir of heavenly glory with those who say, all this is come upon us, yet we have not forgotten thee, neither have we dealt unrighteously in thy covenant. And again, for thy sake, we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Beloved brother, have we forgotten all that the master of us all endured for our sake? He was insulted, beaten, and told by the Pharisees that he had a demon, and yet he did not get angry. They slapped him, buffeted him, mocked him, nailed him to the cross, gave him vinegar with gall to drink, and pierced his side. He endured all this for our salvation, and yet we cannot endure a small insult for his sake. How will we look him face to face on the day of judgment? What defense will we have when we, along with other benefact benefactions he made for us, he presents these as well? And what compensation will he seek for all these? Let's come to our senses, my beloved, and when we have gained a brave and firm heart, let us say with the apostle that we are ready, not only to be bound and beaten for Christ's sake, but even to die. For if we are ready to suffer with him, then we will assuredly be glorified with him and will become fellow heirs with him in the kingdom of heaven. I read this last paragraph over and over again, and uh, it's the most powerful paragraph, I think, in this section from Ephraim. And again, because it draws us, I think, precisely to where all those stories are meant to direct us. They direct us back to Christ. You know, if you're wondering about your life, or if you struggle with a kind of unwillingness to embrace this, Look at the love, what love itself, himself, embraced on your behalf. Look at what you've been, been given and ask, you know, what it is then that you see in your heart or what it is that restrains you from giving the same in return to him. So any comments on this section or the entire hypothesis since we've come to the end of it. Very Lenten reading in some ways. 
Um, certainly good for self-reflection. Anybody uncomfortable with anything that I said or or that was written here that would where you'd want to talk about it? Father, is there any? I, I was just thinking. Um, oh, can you hear me? Yes, sure. About uh, Peter, when you know uh, Jesus had told him, uh, you know that you know um, he would deny him three times. Right. You know, it's almost like you know. I mean, there's an apostle that you know, boy, he, he's you know, he he couldn't do wrong. He couldn't, you know. <laughs> But yet, you know, what was it that made him deny it? Was it that ego? Was it the ego? Was he afraid or was, you know, I, you know, was it the ego that kind of, kind of, you know, stepped in there? I, I, that's the immediate thought that comes, any relation to that or any, any sort of, is that, is that in the same, along, along the same lines that you're talking about here a little bit or am I extrapolating too much? No, I, I don't think you are. You know, I think there was deep fear there and I, I think it is tied to our ego in the sense that we, you know, often move to this self-protective position. And certainly when it came down to it, you know, when Peter's very life was threatened, when he's being, you know, picked out of the crowd as one of the Lord's disciples, then, you know, all that he had said uh, with this kind of certitude, you know, I will never deny you, uh, you know, even if I have to be put to death. And uh, all of that falls away in an instant when he's faced with the reality, you know, with, with the greater with the greater cross that Ephraim is talking about here. You know, if, if we can't endure the smaller things in our life, how will we endure the great one if it is asked of us? And Peter was, you know, had this deep faith in so many ways, was strong in so many ways. Uh, and, and yet, you know, he knew the vulnerability that we all struggle with as human beings, you know, with, which is too great a trust in ourselves that, you know, that, you know, he, you know, did not believe certainly that he had it within him you know, this capacity to deny the Lord. And yet it came very quickly. And as stinging as the kiss of Judas was. And, uh, you know, one has to imagine that, you know, Peter, and we're told he wept uh, over it, but the, the sting of it uh, must have been something that he carried with him you know, throughout the course of his, you know, ministry all the way to his martyrdom, you know, the, the betrayal of love. And uh, it's never an easy thing to see in, in oneself. Angela. Um, just in, in sort of thinking about this, it seems to me personally anyway, that, um, a lot of a lot of uh, behaviors are habitual, and that um, you know we're very often blind just because we just keep repeating blindly mm -hmm. over and over. And um, I'm thinking of the image of Saint John of the Cross, where he says a bird is just as much tied down by a thin thread as he is by a rope. Right. And um, and I'm I'm just seeing. Have, you know my own personal habits um, when I when I um, look at this text as being something that I really have to pay attention to. Right. Yeah. You know, as you're and as you mentioned, John of the Cross in particular, I began to think a little bit about the saying about being lukewarm. You know, be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. That you know, I'll spew you out of my mouth. Uh, because to be hot or cold shows that one understands the weight of something and what is set before one, either to embrace or reject. To be lukewarm is to sort of be untouched by it. And uh, that is where, you know, faith becomes habitual to us. 
or comfortable to us, like a pair of old jeans or old shoes. You know, it's there and ever so comfortable, uh, but no longer challenging, no longer challenging us. And uh, again, there has to be something that, that wakes, wakes us up. And, you know, I think we're entering into Lent and part of what we are to do is to examine what is within our hearts and our sensibilities. And it's not meant to be a time where we beat up on ourselves, but to, to look at ourselves honestly. And, you know, all of our ascetic practices, fasting or vigils or spiritual reading, all of it is meant to help us do that. Uh, again, it can't just be, you know, this kind of period of endurance, but it's meant to really draw us into that relationship with Christ more deeply, to live more fully in the light of the truth. Uh, Denise wrote something here that I think is probably important here. This is probably really worldly of me. No, I don't think so. But if you allow someone to hurt you unjustly or lie about you or anything else that is deliberately inflicted by another without saying anything, will that be good for them? There seems a sense of justice is lost, not saying anything. Uh, absolutely. And, you know, that's why I don't think we read these in an undiscriminating way or undiscerning way that uh, there can be abusive behavior. And if you remember earlier reading in the Evergetinos, uh, it talks about not indiscriminately entrusting oneself to an elder uh, that can end up doing you greater harm than, than helping you <clears throat> grow in sanctity or experience healing. And so certainly there are instances where one can be hurt unjustly. Uh, or where somebody lies about you, or where there, or somebody lies about another, where one would, you know, where justice and charity would demand a response there. And I, th I think this is part of the reason I spent so much time talking about things in the way that I did. I, I don't want us to, to get caught up in the literal reading of it and lose sight of, I think, of the, the deeper spiritual meaning that is being uh, addressed here for us. And that is the struggle, I, I think, with ego, self-will, and our willingness to, to love as Christ loves, which means setting aside our worldly sensibilities so often. And, you know, it often doesn't have to go very far, you know, here Ephraim towards the end of this section is talking about simply bearing an insult that often it is difficult for us to endure such a thing, even in the face of what we see Christ endure on the cross. And so the, the greater question is, I think, are we even remotely embracing the reality of love that we see in Christ and that we are taught in the gospel? Uh, I think the other questions are important. They aren't worldly. What you bring forward here, it's essential and the church, you know, over the course of time uh, has sought to answer and address all those questions, you know, what to do in the face of injustice and, uh, and abuse. And so we, we do want uh, to read this in a sense of not being called to be a doormat. You know, there is a kind of strength. This is a virtue that we're talking about of obedience. And it's not uh, being having no will uh, or, or no self-identity. It's having a clarity about where that identity is rooted and what that will is pursuing. And uh, so I'm glad... You bring up the question, and I don't think it's worldly at all. I think it's an important one for us to ask. So, you know, when we move into the next hypothesis, it's going to deepen this and broaden it out for us. And so we're going to have certainly plenty of opportunities to uh, you know, explore some of these questions further. Okay. So very challenging one tonight. Hang in there, folks. Uh, again, pray a lot. Uh, I think that's, again, where we're going to be shown the greater truth 
uh, of the matter in any case. And so why don't we close as always with the Our Father, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.